Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Behind the Mic podcast with Taylor Medic. I am the aforementioned Taylor Medic, and this is the first episode where we will be joined by a very, very special guest, someone with tremendous broadcasting experience, as we will go behind the mic with that person in just a moment. Again, thank you for clicking on this podcast, downloading, streaming, however long you're listening for, uh, it will be great. Uh, if you did listen to the first episode, uh, I went into uh, a little bit about me and uh, what the goal of the podcast will be, what behind the mic will be, what everything means to me, and a little bit about my broadcasting career. And uh, And I will uh, certainly endeavor to get uh, a lot of guests on that certainly have uh, a lot more experience in the broadcasting world, especially sports broadcasting, uh, than me. And uh, and again, we're going to have some uh, some great conversations, a lot of fun, uh, hopefully informative, um, and giving you a little piece of advice if you are in the industry or getting into the industry, wanting to get into the industry, or just wanting to know some tales and stories of uh, people on the road um, working in a different market uh, other than you and what it was like in a certain uh, decade or time frame. We're certainly going to uh, dive into those stories uh, and a whole lot more and uh, really get into some uh, some great stuff as the weeks go on, as these episodes start rolling out. So without further ado, let's get right into it. Uh, and uh, I'll uh, explain a little bit about my, uh, my guest today on Behind the Mic. It's Bryn Griffiths. Bryn was a, uh, a boss of mine. Uh, PD at uh, Team 1260 in Edmonton. He got me my first start in radio, my first job. Um, a little bit about um, our first interaction together. I'd known Bryn. I'd listened to Bryn uh, on the air, seen him on television, seen him around uh, the uh, the former Northlands Coliseum. So I knew who he was. Um, and going into uh, the station um, and not knowing... Um, not really going in to apply for the job. So Team 1260 at Edmonton, uh, this was uh, in uh, 2008, and I wanted to get into broadcasting school. I wanted to get into the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology radio and television program. And as I said in the first episode, uh, you had to do a career study. You had to essentially write a paper of why you wanted to get into school, and part of the task of this paper, of this career study was uh, the encouragement to go to a local station, uh, whether it's a radio or television, and interview uh, someone uh, that's in the business and you can get an insight and so that you can show that you understand what you're talking about, you know what you're getting into in terms of uh, broadcasting and radio. So I was lucky enough to get a meeting with, uh, with Bryn Griffiths. Uh, I had uh, emailed the radio station and uh, and, it, it, and I don't think I knew I was emailing Bryn, um, but uh, it ended up uh, coming back to me, a message from Bryn. I had sent to, to the station, hey, I would love to talk to someone about uh, getting into uh, the business. Uh, I am uh, looking to get into school. I'm a big sports fan, yada, yada, yada. And uh, I get a response, get a time to come in. Uh, from Bryn directly, and that was really exciting too, knowing that uh, I would have a chance to talk to Bryn. And uh, and what turned out to be 
me doing an interview about uh, what life is like in sports radio ended up being uh, me interviewing for a job at Team 1260 and what the position was, was technical producer and sports update announcer on the Pipeline show with Guy Flaming and Dean Millard. And the rest, they say, is uh, history. And uh, we'll certainly get into as the episodes go on. Um, I can't wait to uh, have Guy and Dean on uh, and talk about uh, our time on the Pipeline show on Team 1260 AM radio in Edmonton. But my first gig uh, and how I got that was through Bryn Griffiths. So I thought, who better to have on the first episode uh, in terms of having a guest would be the man that got uh, me started in uh, in radio and it was fantastic meeting Bryn I remember the the first meeting him uh, you know coming to the door and uh, bringing me in to his office uh, we just chit-chatted really about sports we talked a lot about uh, play-by-play as I said that's what uh, I, the road I eventually want to go down in and, uh, and he had uh, talked about, uh, you know, the process on hiring a, a new play-by-play uh, voice for the Edmonton Oil Kings, who the, the radio station had the rights for uh, in that uh, inaugural season. And it was uh, really exciting uh, hearing uh, the process of how he went through and, and the amount of applications he got um, uh, in, in hiring uh, A.J. Jakubek, who's now out in Ottawa. Um, he was uh, the first voice of the Edmonton Oil Kings of the Western Hockey League uh, in the mid 2000s. Uh, so that's the backstory and how I met uh, Bryn. And Bryn's a, a great storyteller. Um, you'll love this. Uh, you'll love this conversation. Just the stories he has um, about his journey through broadcasting and, and, and having to deal with a lot of uh, personal issues um, throughout his career. He's certainly open about uh, his health. Um, as you'll hear about it um, in this interview, but as well um, dealing with loss um, throughout his career uh, is um, it was a little unexpected that he would uh, be so open about it, but at the same time, um, really great that uh, he was open about it and he's uh, he's able to talk about things and and about career and what it takes to be in not only radio but broadcasting in general and even just uh, general work ethic for any workforce um Bryn has uh, a ton of insight and ton of knowledge and hopefully um if you've never had a chance to meet him uh he can pass down uh, a lot of things um to you and uh, hopefully you get a kick about um you know his journey and, and some of uh, the stories he has to share he's uh, worked in uh, not only radio but as well as on the communication side of things um with uh with uh the Edmonton Oilers and the Winnipeg Jets, the NHL. So really, it's a lot of great things. So let's get right into it, and uh, and we'll chat uh, at the end of the conversation uh, again. Um, but Bryn Griffiths, longtime uh, broadcaster in uh, in Western Canada, MightyMouth.ca is his website. He's into uh, podcasting as well as well as communication consultations. Uh, on his uh, MightyMouth.ca website, and he'll go into that uh, in the end. But uh, enjoy the maiden voyage of Behind the Mic, our first guest, Bryn Griffiths. Well, I'm pleased to announce my first guest for Behind the Mic, and we have a very special man with us today. He's got over 30 years 
in sports broadcasting and communications all over uh, Western Canada and the Prairie Provinces. Bryn Griffiths joins me from Edmonton, Alberta on Behind the Mic. Bryn, how are you doing today? Great, Taylor. You, thanks for having me on as numero uno uh, on your guest list. I like that. Well, hey, you got me my numero uno job in radio back <laughs> at uh, Team 1260 in the day. And I just, uh, I think it's a good way to uh, show uh, a little bit. Uh, I mean, there's a lot uh, to thank for, but uh, this is uh, the least I can do to have you on. Um, let's go behind the mic. You know, you're a guy that's been uh, around for a very long time. Uh, and let's go back to uh, the start of your broadcasting career, uh, 1984 in Moose Jaw. Uh, first, what wanted you why did you wanted to get into uh, into sports broadcasting what got you into sports broadcasting well, well you know what's weird is that I, I go back even further than when i actually got started because when i was in junior high at avalon junior high in edmonton and guys wanted to play basketball or or wanted to play flag football or whatever and i still did that stuff but i was always fascinated by monday night football and watching hockey night in canada on television and, and listening to radio and, and that kind of stuff but i'd always wanted to do play-by-play so i i was doing play-by-play into an old panasonic tape recorder in grade eight and that goes back a long long way that goes back into the 70s but i, I was fascinated by the business and so i always kind of figured that'd be a direction that i want to go but of course as you go through high school you kind of get sidetracked and and then you get out of high school you want to take a year off and go to europe which is what i did and and then I got back, and I realized that I didn't get my grade 12 English marks up high enough, so I couldn't get into the radio and television arts program at Nate. So while I was working at an auto center, I decided that maybe what I should do is do some volunteer work. So I did some volunteer work for what was back in the day called QC uh, TV, or it was cable TV, and it, in, in, as it was just getting started in Edmonton. And they were looking for guys just to do volunteer work, TV work. So I just went and, you know, you pull the cables and you line up the cameras and you turn on the lights. And I got a little bit of experience there. Then I realized there was an opportunity to do some volunteer work at the University of Alberta at CJSR Radio, which was not a radio station really in, in its truest form. It was basically just on cable. But I went and did some volunteer work. Morley Scott was the sports director, and Morley did the play-by-play of the Golden Bear hockey team. But so as I was helping out with the broadcast, I wasn't getting paid. But I had this other job on the side, and I was working at Sport Check, selling shoes, you know, all that kind of stuff. But uh, sure enough, Morley got a gig in St. Paul, and so they hired me to be the sports director. It was like 800 bucks a month, and... I was just still kind of screwing around living at home. So my dad said, well, here's a good chance to just kind of get in there and more importantly, not learn, but get to know people. And maybe you can take it, take it from there to somewhere. So I did play by play with the U of A Golden Bears hockey team for one year, which was so great for me because I had a chance to talk to Claire Drake, a coaching legend in this country on bus trips coming back from Saskatoon and Calgary and and, and Billy Moores was another assistant coach. And I learned a lot about the game of hockey from those guys afterwards. We were just driving home after many wins. Anyway, uh, sure enough, I did play-by-play. And I had one game in Winnipeg. And it was a playoff game. The winner would go on to the CIAU, which is now CIS, National Hockey Tournament. 
and the Golden Bears were pretty much out of it with about a minute and a half to go. Sure enough, they came back, tied it up, and their overtime wasn't sudden death. It was 10 minutes, and Bears fell behind again on an early goal and then came back with two goals in the last minute. So my call of that game was right off the Richter scale. It was uh, it was over the top. And that ended up being my first demo tape, which I sent to Moose Jaw the next uh, fall because they suddenly were looking for a play-by-play guy in the Western Hockey League. And I went, and, and because of the contacts that I had made through doing the volunteerism, some of the guys in Edmonton had recommended me to go to Saskatchewan. So so I got a call from Saskatchewan. I sent in that tape, which I thought was pretty good. Now I listen back to it and I cringe, but you know what? They like the enthusiasm, right? And so anyway, I got hired, and that was my first real paying gig at CHAB in Musha doing the Warrior Games, and Theo Fleury was there, Kelly Bookberger was there, Mike Keane, Lyle Odling. There's a lot of guys. Uh, it wasn't a great team, but we had some really good talent on the team. But it, but it was a fun, fun experience for me, and I stayed there for four and a half years, and I loved every minute of it. What was it like back in the day, you know, when you, you hear about a job opening? I mean, now it's uh, everything's online. Um, job postings are really uh, at your fingertips. But back in that day, obviously, it seemed like a lot of word of mouth. Uh, how did uh, yeah. the job posting come about? Well, I, I had the general manager, Stan Ravidal, phone me and ask if I would like to send a tape because he had heard from a good friend of mine, Jamie Herbison, who whose nickname was the coach, and Jamie worked in Edmonton and worked in Calgary. Uh, really a great guy, but but I was, you know, these guys were coming out to Golden Bear games and got to know me because we'd go up to the Bears then afterwards and have a couple of beer after the game, and Bruce Buchanan was doing the Oilers play-by-play on ITV, and, and Bucky would be there on occasion, and Ron Rimmer was at CFCW. These guys, so you get to know all these guys, right? And I always, I'm a big believer in, it's not necessarily what you know, it is who you know. Mm-hmm. Because you these are the guys, you can have a resume as long as your arm, and I do, uh, but it was the it, it was the people who stepped up for me and gave recommendations, and that's how I got in the door in Saskatchewan. Stan had heard about me from two, uh, two uh, guys in Edmonton and got a hold of my number and phoned, and they were really, you know, the timing is everything. Uh, Scott Armstrong was the play-by-play the first year of the Warriors in Moose Jaw, but he had to, he left for another gig, so they had to get a guy in in three weeks. So, uh, so they liked my enthusiasm, my excitement level, and because of the recommendations given, you know, on on my behalf, I had a tough choice to make: do I do I stay here and keep doing Golden Bear games, or do I take this chance to to work for a, a big company in a small market where they basically just take you they mold you and then they farm you out to their other stations i i just took the chance mm-hmm. which is probably the the story of my broadcast career is i was never afraid to to take on a new challenge and i took it on and i had a, i had a blast with it it was great but back to your question nowadays i still think it's important that you network that networking is so so critical for anybody because that's how you're probably going to get your next gig because there's a lot of good guys out there, a lot of good broadcasters out there that are as good, if not better than you. But if, if you have a good rep and you have the right people stepping up on your behalf, you've got a really great chance of getting that job. 100%. Yeah, networking seems uh, it's always been the, the timeless uh, recipe 
uh, for success, uh, specifically, like you just said, in in, uh, in radio and sports broadcasting, but it, almost in any uh, workforce or walk of life, networking is is huge. One last question, I guess, on, on Moose Jaw and, and maybe just making that transition. What was it like moving away from home? I mean, that's a big crossroads that uh, a lot of kids face uh, coming out of school. Well, you know what? My home life and family life was great. I, I, I you know very supportive parents uh, I, my sister was fantastic and we we were in a home that i mean i basically controlled and had the basement to myself so i never really felt like i was being pushed out at any point but the the you know the time had come to take the move and and i remember packing everything up and uh, just jamming it all into my ford mustang and away i went and <laughs> Yeah, it was it was a little it was a little weird. And the other thing too is that I remember I think I was only making like a thousand dollars a month, and it was and so of course you, you know if you haven't had the budget before, I think that the first apartment I had was way it was like six hundred a month, and I had not any clue on recognizing that I was going to have to move in with some guys or I wasn't going to make it financially. But but it, you know you live and learn, right? And it was all part of the growing experience of me not just as a broadcaster, but as a person. And it was fun. I enjoyed it, but it's scary. But it, it, you know, the bottom line for me, that fun word is going to come up an awful lot here today. So Moose Jaw, you go there for uh, just over five years and then you come back to Edmonton uh, to work at K97 as the sports director, uh, getting an opportunity back in Edmonton, but maybe not play by play. Uh, What led to uh, you moving back home? Well, you know, it, it was uh, my my dad had passed away and had a heart attack. Actually, died in Moose Jaw. They, my mom and my dad came down to visit me uh, one Easter, and the Warriors were out, and uh, so I had a little more time where I could spend with them. But a friend of mine, Roger Millions, was doing play-by-play for the Saskatoon Blades, and they were taking on the Swift Current Broncos and Joe Sackett, and. Roger called and said, hey, listen, can you come and do color for me on Saturday night? I said, well, my folks are here, but I'll, I'll bring them out. And so I phoned the Broncos organization, and they were really great. They said, look, we'd be happy. We'll just comp you a pair of tickets for the playoff game. Just bring your mom and your dad. We'd be happy to host them. And uh, anyway, so the night were, the, the night came. I did the broadcast, and we're driving the hour and a half back to Moose Jaw. I had the greatest conversation with my dad, but it didn't seem quite right. It just seemed something seemed a little off to me, and I can't quite put my finger on what happened or what was going on there. But uh, I thought it was a little unusual. The next morning, there was in the uh, in the two bedroom apartment that I had, uh, I could hear my mom and my dad were getting up, and and this was like five thirty in the morning. I could hear from my room, my dad was complaining that he had some indigestion. And that his arm was feeling funny. And, of course, when you're sleeping there or lying there, just kind of in a half-sleep daze, I recognized those are the signs of a heart attack. So I woke up and I said I t- said to Dad, I said, listen, I'm going to take you for a little drive. Let's go for a drive. I can't sleep, which was bullshit and a lie because I, I, I'd woken up because I realized there's something going on. Anyway, he had had an aneurysm uh, 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 of his aorta, which is almost – you don't, most people don't survive that. He didn't. And so another half a year had gone by, and I realized I needed to get back home to Edmonton just to be supportive of my mom and my sister. Mm-hmm. So so I took the job. K97 was a monster of a radio station back in the late 80s because 
there was only really two FM stations that were playing rock. So I took the gig and came and worked on the morning show with Bruce Kenyon and Sharon Mallon and still covered sports, got to cover the Oilers, which was a blast, just differently. Wasn't doing play-by-play. The other thing, too, when you've done play-by-play in the Western League for five years and your goal is to make it to the bigs, you come to realize pretty fast that you're a Canadian, so you're not going to jump across the border. So there's one of six jobs going to be open to you. And then you take a look at who's doing the play-by-play in all those big NHL markets. Mm -hmm. And you realize, I'm never going to get there. So now's a good chance to make the right move from a family perspective. And that's why I came back to Edmonton. And I was never sorry that I did it. I had a great time in in Saskatchewan. Love Moose Jaw. Love going back there. Everybody's always so great. Uh, And there wasn't a single time I regretted it, but the time had come to make the move home. And a, and a very short one uh, at that because you uh, you know it's funny you you mentioned that uh, only uh, six jobs um, yeah but you land up with the Winnipeg Jets uh, the, the following year in the early nineties um, talk about how that came about and uh, uh, and just getting another opportunity to move away and uh, and now get a job uh, in the NHL. Well, so I'm settled at home, and I, I'm back living in the in the basement uh, while supporting my mom and my sister emotionally and trying to get over everything. Anyway, I um, when I was in Saskatchewan, I kept sending tapes to Kurt Keelback, who was the longtime voice of the Jets. And Kurt would, you know, Kurt, while he's on the road in the NHL, would just listen to these cassettes. I still laugh when I talk about cassettes. But uh, he would always send back notes about, hey, you're sounding great. Why don't you work on this, this, and this, and this, and don't change this, this, and this, and this. So I was getting critiques from from Kurt two or three times a month. So I thought that was great. That was an opportunity to get better. But what I wasn't noticing at the time was that I was being noticed at the Mm -hmm. same time. So, So anyway, in Winnipeg, Michael Hearn was doing color commentary with Kurt on the radio, and Mikey decided to take a job with the organization. And so CKY, uh, Don K, and K- Kurt, they were talking with the Jets and said, look, we got to find somebody. We have to find somebody to replace Mike. And Kurt goes, I, I got just the guy. I'll give him a call on Moose Jaw. He didn't know I'd left. He, he did not know I'd left for Edmonton. But anyway, so Kurt tracked me down. And said, look, they, they're looking for a color guy to work with me on the radio broadcast. Are you interested? If you are, get a hold of Don Kay. And Dennis McDonald was the assistant general manager of the Jets at the time. And so I did that. In between leaving Moose Jaw and Winnipeg, I have a highlight, a career highlight. In 1990, I got a chance to cover the Oilers for K97 to do home, like to go home and away during their playoff run where they won the cup. Wow. And so you're traveling on the charter with them. Like I went to every game. We, you know, they, they took on the jets and beat them in seven. Very dramatic. Came back to the coming one, Yeah. Yeah. Coming out party for Billy Ranford, who was so, and Billy will even admit this. Billy was awful. The first two games and the, the town here, obviously were ready to turn on them. Then they took on the LA Kings and every, every series, it was somebody different in the first series. Yari Curry was just Yari was just on fire, and and so was Asatikinen. Uh, second series, they they sweep the Los Angeles Kings at the Great Western Forum. It's Gretzky and the Kings, and they swept them in four. And it was the kid line, 
with Adam Graves, Martinez Jelena, and who am I forgetting? John, I've got Graves. Murphy. Thank you, Joe Murphy. Uh, all three great guys, and they they carried the Oilers through that series. Then it's on to Chicago. I had a chance to go to these games at the Chicago Stadium, which was legendary. I, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking of the anthem and the horn and everything. And it was the Mark Messier show. Mess was abs- absolutely tore the Blackhawks to shreds. And the Oilers win that in six, I believe. And then we went right from there straight on to Boston. And, of course, it was the Boston Garden, another fabulous original six arena that was very dumpy but had all this atmosphere. And the Oilers won that very first game on the Peter Klima triple overtime game. And I still remember the moment I looked at my watch. It was like 10 after 1, I think. And uh, they went on to win the Cup. And that is a, that's still a career highlight for me covering that team but here i'm getting a chance to go work for an nhl team and i thought well this would be fun it was only a one-year contract because the radio rights were up for renegotiation but here again i took a chance Mm -hmm. so i said you know what one year experience will be a blast for me i'm just gonna go everything's settled at home time to go out again on my own and i moved to winnipeg for a year year and a half and i really loved it i really enjoyed it great city uh always gets the nasty knock about the cold weather and yeah it's it's a little colder there than it is in edmonton only because we get a little more pacific air here yeah but you know when they're in a when they're in a cold snap they're in one but i love winnipeg and the people there were fantastic treating me so well and uh, it was great i I, it was just a blast i can't say enough about working with kurt and another broadcast legend uh, ken nicholson who was called the friar because he looked a lot like friar tuck in the uh, in the Robin Hood movies, but I learned I, I learned a, I learned a shitload from those guys too, and I just couldn't take in enough. Sure enough, the radio rights changed hands, and I meant I wasn't going to be retained, so I was being let go. But I was replaced by Don Whitman. There's no shame in that because Whit Whit's a legend. Yeah, you know, yeah. as a broadcaster, and you know, he was kind enough to phone and apologize that he was taking my gig. I said, look. Man, I hey, it, I'm just happy to absorb everything that I've had through my career so far, and and so uh, so I didn't know what I was going to do, and I'm sitting at home, and then I get a call from Brian Hall at CJCA in Edmonton, and Halsey phones up and he says, "What are you doing?" I said, "I don't know. I just I just got to figure. Are you thinking of coming back?" And I said, "Yeah, I might." He said he told me he'd been working for a long time with Fred Fleming who was a longtime CFL player and had been working on CFL broadcasts. And Freddie was kind of Halsey's right-hand guy at CJCA. But Fred was taking a new gig with a good friend of him, of his, called Pat Bolin, of course, who's the, who was the longtime owner of the Denver Broncos. He and Freddie had worked together for a long time. So Pat asked Fred to come down to Denver, and that opened up a position for me at CJCA. So I ended up going right from Winnipeg to CJCA and worked with Halsey on the Eskimo broadcast for a, a few years and it was a blast like it just it just seemed to stumble in from one thing into the next but you know at the end of the day people I have to be reminded of this but people say the reason why that happens is because you've treated people well in the past and people like your style mm-hmm. and they trust you so I was I was really delighted to be able to come back to Edmonton and then the sad part for me is my sister passed away when I was here uh, she'd had an epileptic seizure. She had had suffered with epilepsy and had a grand mal seizure and didn't make it. So it's weird how the timing just seemed to work. I happened to be home here in Edmonton and I was able to support my mom while I had another great job. So 
from a you know like i said two tragedies in the span of a couple of years but at least i was able to be around and support my family who supported me for such a long time yeah i mean and that's a big thing too i'm sure being away you and that's the fear of of some people is moving away they'll be farther from their family but um you know it sounds like you're able to support your mom uh, a lot what did that what do you think that meant to her for uh, to see uh, her son not only have a great job um but uh, you know being right uh, w- with her every step through the way through the the good and and the bad that you had just cited i think she felt a little bad when i when i made a conscious decision to come home from moose jaw to be supportive she didn't think that was necessary that I should just continue to do what I was doing career wise, but I had to do that. I, I just, I had to do that. Uh, and the other thing too, is that, you know, when dad passed away in Moose Jaw and so somebody had to drive the station wagon back. Right. So, so I did that, but, uh, but when it came back, the Winnipeg thing it had ended anyway. And I got this great opportunity to come back to work in Edmonton with, with Brian, who I love Brian's, one of those guys who was very instrumental for me in a lot of ways. Uh, so, so the, the timing just seemed to work out crazy and good, even through the tragic circumstances. But I, I um, you know, it, it was really interesting watching my mom. She handled losing dad pretty well, but losing my sister was a lot tougher for her, but I found out exactly how, like she was, she was a wonderful little old Welsh lady, so welcoming and friendly. But really, when when things when push came to shove, I realized how she was hard as nails. Like she was a tough cookie, and I was lucky to have her right through until 2002. But it was nice to be in the area, and and I check in a couple times a day to see how she was doing, and she she handled it really really well. And for me, I was able to just kind of continue my career. So we were kind of going down these parallel paths and it, it, the, the location for me, I'm just lucky that I was in Edmonton. That's all. And I'm sure she was your biggest fan too, probably listening to, oh. uh, to everything. What was it like always getting feedback? Still is, I bet you. Yeah. Feedback from, uh, you know, from your mom, from, uh, when, when you, those early days of being in Edmonton and, and being on the, on the radio and on air and getting uh, feedback from her. Well, I always tried to, what's the word? I tried to, uh, well, I'd always listen because that's what good sons do. Apparently, uh, I listened, and I would filter. <laughs> I would kind of just make sure that uh, you know. Th- I might not have been happy with the show, but she would just have thought it was great. So I tried to make sure that while it's good to get a little bit of an emotional boost from your mom, who wouldn't want that? But at the end of the day, I also have to recognize that you know what I I I could have been way better today than I was yesterday and I will be better tomorrow. And so it, I always appreciated the, the real positive boost uh, as any parent would, would give their kid. But I, I had to make sure that I wasn't having my tires overinflated either, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and it can be tough too. Sometimes, uh, you know, oh, yeah. you got to get the, the, the good and the bad feedback. Um, what was it like working you know, going from hockey, a very heavy hockey uh, background, uh, working in Moose Jaw and then uh, in Edmonton and, and then Winnipeg, and then jumping into football. Um, what's that transition like for someone? Obviously, we're all fans of, uh, you know, particular sports, but what's it like to, to really jump into a football broadcast and maybe not having a whole lot of football broadcasting experience? Well, I only played football in high school, right? So that was the that was the experience I had. But I wasn't doing color; I was just hosting 
the broadcast. So the, the key for me was make sure the pregame show has the guests lined up or you did an interview with Doug Flutie today or whoever, you know, uh, you know, uh, Louis Pisaglia. Just make sure you had your interviews done. And uh, so it was a matter of just pure execution with energy, which is always so important. Uh, so for me, doing the pregame shows was a snap. Half times were were pretty easy because John Farlinger, who worked on the broadcast with Halsey, far we always used to joke that Halsey could do both the color and the play by play. So what's seemed Farley like he doing? always did. <laughs> we always we always used to joke about that. But I always liked I loved using Farley on the on the halftime show because uh, because it was an opportunity for him to shine even brighter. And then on the post game show, it was real simple. Uh, I'd grown up listening to Brian do the, the football team's broadcasts from a tiny tot at Clark Stadium. And uh, I used to listen with my dad as we drive home. We would listen to the points after show. And Halsey would be just basically, he would run roughshod over the callers. But that was part of the, the, the character that Brian built. Mm-hmm. Brian is not like that at all, but he loved he loved it. You know, if he didn't agree with you, he'd tell you he didn't like agree with you, and he'd hang up on you. And people would get angry. And who would they be talking about tomorrow? They talk about Brian. And anyway, so I had this opportunity the two years that I was on those broadcasts where Brian did the post game show on the home broadcasts. As soon as he was done from the locker room, he would just beetle downtown to CJC Studios. We would stall. I was working with Larry Barris at the time and so larry and i would would do the stretch for about 10 or 15 minutes to talk about stats and then we'd get in our earpiece somebody would say okay brian's in studio and brian would do the open line show and that was i had the opportunity to do the points after show on the road broadcasts because brian you know brian didn't want to be doing it on the road so so it was a chance for me to step into those shoes and you know as i'm doing the post game show the points after show I had recognized how much I had learned from watching Brian and learning. This is what I like. This is what I don't like. You know, that kind of stuff. But all the way through that whole two-year span, I couldn't get my dad out of my head because, you know, I was flashing back to those times where we'd drive home from Clark Stadium listening to the points after show, and I'm hearing him, I'm doing this. I'm doing this. And so, and I also got a chance to work with Bill Matheson as well. Uh, doing the the Bill and Bill show or the eleven to two show at CJCA, and Maddie is another guy that I I, I just ha- I held in such high esteem. Still do, uh, you know, the opportunity to work with him for almost a year on that show. Bill Jackson had taken some leave time, so I, I, another show my dad used to listen to re- religiously, and I was working with. So here I am over these two to three years. I'm working with Brian Hall and Bill Matheson, just watching and taking in as much as I possibly could and learning and you can never stop learning in the biz. And mm-hmm. So it was, it was, it was fun, but the, the football transition wasn't as tough as you'd think, because I always believed if you've got a color analyst there who's played the game, I know the broadcasting part. I can get us transitionally from one thing to the next, but the goal for me, and I did the same thing in Calgary when I worked on the, on the Flames broadcast, so we're working with Mike Rogers. Well, Mike played in the National Hockey League; was a great player. So I, I'm not the expert here. So the key with Farley on those football broadcasts was to make sure that if I didn't understand something, I'd ask the guy who played. He's got to be the he's got to be the shining star here. Mm-hmm. So so for me, those broadcasts were easy. I just had to I had to worry about the broadcast part. 
and I was surrounded by guys that had played and knew what they were talking about. All you got to do is ask the right questions, man. And that's obviously the, the, the role of the host is to to guide uh, the ship into the right direction, and that's a good point of ask the expert. He's the expert. That's why he's here. Do you think now maybe guys that, um, quote-unquote, didn't play the game do try to maybe flex a bit with their take or try to input their knowledge of the game maybe a little too much rather than leaving to the experts? I I don't think it's a bad thing to have your opinion, but, and this is, this is, I I, I keep going back to working at uh, Sportsnet 960, the fan in Calgary. If I didn't like the way the power play was reacting, would I give an opinion? Sure I would. I was also getting paid to give opinion, not only just lead the broadcast but at the end of the day, the most powerful opinion wasn't mine. It was the player, Mike Mike Rogers. Mm-hmm. I th- but I, so what I always tried to do is I would say, you know, I didn't like the way the power played. This didn't seem to be feeding the point enough. Did, do you see it the same way, Mike? And then, then you're bringing in the more powerful opinion. But I think we've fallen into this trap a lot lately where the hosts think that they're the experts. And really, they're not. The, the expert is whoever you have on the line. Like if, if you're getting somebody, okay, so why would I try to make myself look smarter than Scotty Bowman if we had Scotty, Bo- Scotty <laughs> Bowman on the air? The, the goal for me is to get the most out of Scotty Bowman because he's the guy. He's the man. That's just one, that's just one example I can just think of off the top of my head. You know, Ray Ferraro is a classic example now. Ray is, I think, the best color commentator doing the game of hockey – well, I can't have Ray on the podcast and go spouting off about what I don't like about this and this and this. Fans are more or should be more interested in getting the opinion of Ray than they would be the host. And that's just how I see it. But, hey, listen, the business continues to change. And, and uh, I, I, you know, I'm prepared to deal with and accept that. But I, I still think that if you're a great interviewer, you turn the guests into the star because that's who they are. And you talked about, too, the, the, the colleagues you worked with, uh, especially just going um, back to your, your days at uh, CJCA uh, and working with legendary broadcaster Brian Hall. Um, where do you draw maybe the line or what should the ratio be? Because you mentioned I, I, I watched, I listened, I soaked it in. you got to be a sponge, but at the same time, you don't want to become a, rep, a replica of Brian Hall. So how does no. how does one craft their work into um, obviously it, it, picking up cues and then becoming uh, their own personality? Well, let me use the word mold, and I don't mean mold that grows on on cheese. I'm, how, how do you how do you create you? I guess is probably the best way of doing it. Well, what you do is you pull certain things from broadcasters that that you've respected or that or that maybe that you don't like, but you like that they do that way or that way. Uh, you know, Howard Cosell, when I was growing up, Howard was on Monday Night Football and did boxing, and, and Howard was really not an overly likable guy, but he did some things really well, and if you can find a little bit of, take a little bit of that, you it's not a bad idea. So when I'm growing up watching hockey, I had two hockey guys that I loved, Danny Gallivan, who is a longtime uh, voice of the Montreal Canadiens on television, and Bob Cole. Obviously, those are the two radio guys or sorry, two, two TV guys. Rod Phillips is doing the games here on radio for the longest time. All three of those guys, you take a little bit of a blend out of the things that you like. 
And, you know, when I go back and, and it doesn't happen very often, maybe every couple of years, I stumble on another cassette of a hockey game that I did in the Western League. And I listen to it and I can hear in my play by play only because I'm listening for it. I can hear a little bit of Rod in there. Uh, certainly, uh, certainly I can hear some Bob Cole and Danny Gallivan. And I guess in some respects now I can actually hear a little bit of Kurt Keel back in there as well, because I was getting feedback from Kurt at the same time. Uh, best piece of advice Kurt ever gave me was make sure that you treat every game like it's a game seven, even if it means nothing because the listener is expecting you to have energy and have an excitement level. It's great advice. Uh, a classic example now. And it's funny how people are only noticing now that Jack Michaels has moved from radio to TV, did a great job on radio at Chad, but now he's on TV. So the audience is a little bigger and seeing him a little differently. Just listen to Jack in the last three minutes of a, of a hockey game, mm-hmm. you can hear him. I can anyway. He's shifting his gears into overdrive, and you can hear his energy level moving. I can hear him moving up the energy and emotional stairs as he's getting down to the you know and down the stretch they come. Is you know, I can hear it in his voice, and you just pick that up from guys. But sometimes I think you do it subconsciously, and other times I think you do it consciously. And I, I don't think that it means that you're you know, mirroring Halsey or or Rod or uh, Peter Mars, another guy I respect so much in Calgary. Yeah, but I think you just you take certain things from those guys, and I think you just do it organically. And uh, and then the other thing too is you know you gotta you, you gotta let your personality hang out. And I learned that even in Moose Jaw, we we were working on the Hot Rock and you know uh, CHAB, which was the big music station in Saskatchewan and the signal went everywhere. And so what we had determined, and I think this was more consciously me. And then when Rob Carney came on our broadcast, we really took it up about nine notches. I wanted the broadcast to sound like they were on a rock and roll station. So for us, the game, I didn't want it to sound like a traditional hockey game. We, we really let it all hang out on our broadcast. And, and, uh, and, and I think that, that's kind of a product of the of the station we were on, and like there was, and this keeps coming back to me. And it was something we just did on the spur of the moment in Moose Jaw. They're getting their asses kicked by the Regina Pats in the first period. Like it was ugly, and it was big in the first period. And in the back of your head, as a broadcaster, you're thinking, okay, I got to keep listeners somehow here. I don't want them running over to CKRM and listening to Kevin Gallant. I want them to be listening to us. So I turned to Rob and I said, "Yeah, yeah. I, are you hungry? Because I could really use with a, do with a pizza right now. This is on the air." <laughs> and Rob looked over and a little impish grin on his face. I said, "Well, Wayne and Laverne down at Western Pizza have us on all the time. Let's just order a pizza over the air." So we ordered a couple of ham and pineapples and a pepperoni and a meat lovers, and and we said, "Look, if you're listening to us, and we did this as a lark, we didn't ever expect it." I said, "If you're listening to us, just bring them up to the press box and we'll pay for them." And then we moved on with the rest of the disastrous first period. Sure enough, middle of the second period, Sky's coming up through the seats, up through the always, for a press box with four pizzas. And so uh, we welcomed the new into our press box, and I offered to pay, and they didn't want to have anything to do with it. And then we took pizza down to Kevin at the CKRM, the Regina broadcast booth. And, uh, and guys thought it was very funny, and 
that that was just you know that's my personality i just want to have some fun it's only sports as i told bob Stoffer a million times when bob was getting rolling i said bob we cover the toy department of life it can't sound like it's the most serious thing on the planet it isn't it's only sports and the, i so i guess the pizza game for me is what a lot of uh, guys that I, I know of r- remind me of. The, and the other funny thing about the pizza game, it was a Saturday night game in Musha. The next night, we're in Saskatoon to play the Blades and the old Saskatoon Arena. And we come into, you know, we're coming in smarting because we just got our asses kicked the night before by the Pats. And, and we so we go into the little, uh, the, the media room, and I see Roger Millions and Dennis Bayak, Daryl Lubinicki. Uh, Daryl was the longtime GM, and, and Dennis was the longtime assistant general manager of the Blades when I was there. And Dennis came over and just chewed the shit out of me. He said, I can't believe you had the audacity to order pizza <laughs> on the air. He like, and, and Dennis meant it because Dennis is a very traditional and a great broadcaster, does a mm-hmm. great play by play with the Jets, but he's very traditional in the way he does it. He didn't like. I don't think he liked this rock and roll thing that we had done. This little shtick. This little, but I said to Dennis, I said, Dennis, you know, it's like seven nothing or seven one. I got to do what I got to do to keep listeners. That's my job. And anyway, so we disagreed. But Roger was over in the corner just killing himself. He was just couldn't he? Because he, he, Rog said, Brinster, I know exactly what you're doing. I get it. But Dennis is a tradition. Dennis is one of the assistant general managers, so he doesn't want to see his product being demeaned in any way and or me made fun of and in fairness the warriors uh, board of directors tried to have me fired oh, over wow. that uh, because they thought that i had been making fun of their team and the general manager in musha at that time was uh Vern trail another broadcast legend from days gone by and Vern uh told the 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 board he said look Vern's got a job to do and that's to keep listeners listening you can't worry about you guys and how bad your power play is. The only person that made the, the team look bad last night was every guy on that bench, not the broadcasters. Anyway, so he backed me, and and but like I said, you just you learn to develop your personal your personal style by who you are, and then and the other thing that Brian told me is that okay, here's your personality and it's colorful and it's fun, but you got to take your energy level times ten. So, because you got to make it flow through the through the airwaves, and so those are the things you learn from those guys. Is you learn to take who you are, don't be afraid to be who you are. Because as Halsey used to say, fifty percent of the audience hates you already. So don't worry about whether or not you're loved. Just be yourself. And one thing my dad told me before I even got into the business was he said, "Look, what people think of you is none of your business. Just go and be you." And so that's been a continuing theme from guys that I, I held in high esteem and still do who gave me any pieces of advice. It was just let it all hang out, baby. Yeah, and that's is that a thing that people, uh, I think, nowadays need to maybe take into account a little bit more? It's, you know, worry about your what you can control and what you do and, uh, and you know, keep the critics quiet out of your head, well, sorry, I, so, so to speak. I, I don't think you, you, if you're worried about the critics or how, how people feel about your broadcast, then I think you're, you're not being true to yourself. I think you just have to, you got to go on and you have to be confident in what you're doing. And so for me, that was the big, uh, the big thing for me was just to get out there and do my thing, right? 
Uh, I, I never worried about what people thought at the end of the day. I, as long as I was happy leaving the booth or leaving the studio and driving home to have a barbecue that night, I, I was happy. And if people loved it, great. If people hated it, okay, great. You can't worry about it, right? Mm-hmm. You just, if, you're, if, if, you're, if you're thinking or concentrating so much on people loving everything you do, one, you'll be very disappointed, and two, I don't think you're doing it right. That's just me. So I, I just I never worried too much about what what other people thought. I was getting work and always got work because people just thought I was unique and different. And I think unique and different is a strong is okay. So when I'm at twelve sixty and we'll get there in a few minutes, I always look for people who have strong personalities or or guys who weren't afraid to kind of go there a little bit, right? So that, and that's that's basically how I how I went through my career. I was never afraid to take a risk on a job, and uh, you try to put your individual stamp on it. You mentioned taking risks and and taking challenges, uh, and and as you get in through the nineties, um, you jump into TV. So after ninety four, um, you get into uh, TV with uh, with CBC and CFRN. Talk about making that jump uh, as uh, a radio background predominantly, and then uh, yep. getting uh, in front of the camera. Well, I've been working at Kissing and CHQT, and I think I was at the point of almost burning out, and I walked away from a job which that Bob Lang was the general manager, Terry Strain was the guy who, and it was this was pre-chorus and pre-Shaw, and they couldn't understand why I just walk away from a gig, but I had nothing left. So they said, "So you're leaving to go to nothing?" I said, "Yeah, I need I need some time." So I, uh, I, I, I quit, and I walked away, and about two and a half months later, uh, realized, eh, maybe I'll look for something a little different in the media business. And there was a position that opened up at CBC on the weekends, and it was, uh, it was a producer position, and, uh, and what you did was you went in on the weekends, and you shot-listed all these sporting events, which means take the time codes down, get it edited, and voice them over. Because CBC Edmonton at that time did what they they did something that had been pre uh, pre my time getting in there they they looked after sports syndication for the country so what would happen is they because CBC ran really thin on the weekends so they would have a news person doing news weather and sports in Halifax so we would cut their highlight packs and in some cases on our NFL packages I'd voice them over. And then we'd send them across the country, and all the little stations could use them. So that was uh, that. was that. And I was working with a guy uh, named Jamie Campbell, who just came from Toronto to this his first ever gig at CBC Edmonton. And so, of course, Jamie and I hit it off really well. And we were doing this sports syndication thing across the country, and we loved it. It was just no pressure, and we had so much fun. And then, uh, and then, so I did that for about two years, and and I, it is some of the fun, most fun I've ever had in the business. It was great. I didn't do a lot of on camera stuff, but toward the end, Jamie and I were doing like a two man crew, and we were pushing the envelope a little at CBC. There was one show, and this is, it makes me laugh when I think about it now. There was one show we did where we didn't wear ties. <laughs> you know, we had the nice little mock. Well, Elliot Friedman the other night had a, yeah. had a sports coat on. Ron and a mock look. <laughs> yeah. Well, we were doing that. And and uh, I still remember, uh, I, I'm trying to remember the name of the head of TV for Edmonton. Uh, 
it was uh, John Baker was his name. Sadly, passed away now. But he um, he called both of us. He says, "What do you get? What are you guys doing here on the weekends?" And we said, "Well, we're just doing the sports highlights." And he laughed because he, he nobody had nobody had ever gone on CBC in the local market here without a tie. And we both were just, uh, we both decided we're just going to push the envelope a little bit. It was more risky for Jamie, who had a much bigger future ahead of him in TV than I, I ever did. I never really viewed myself that way, but 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 we were just having fun. So he just laughed it off, and he says, well, I have not had any complaints, so just keep rolling, boys. And so, so we did, but it was fun. I, I really enjoyed that and learned a lot about the editing process and everything that went on behind the scenes, watched carefully as Jamie basically grew on on screen and it was fun just to watch him and i did the producing for that weekend show it, it was it was a blast i just one of those things that energy level great contacts uh people went to bat for me and i got this gig with no tv experience at all and i and i grew and i learned from it and um and then uh one day a position opened up at the edmonton oilers and Bill Tewilly, the longtime PR manager and vice president of public and media relations, needed to fill a position, and he and and his lovely wife uh, were flipping through the TV, and Bill goes, "I got to find somebody to replace Trish Kerr, who was moving out of community relations into a different area," and there I was on TV, and he goes, "There's a guy," and I had one year of NHL experience where I worked for the Winnipeg Jets. And I always kind of thought that was a throwaway year. But it, it ended up not being that because I got a job with the Edmonton Oilers in community and media relations. And so I moved from the TV, took another risk, and tried something else. Well, that seems like a, a, a dream job right there, working for the Edmonton Oilers, and you're right smack dab in the middle. Um, sum up that experience uh, working for the team and, and being uh, around that group that uh, – you know, I think as a lot of fans would say, probably uh, a really fun team to watch because they just worked hard. They weren't the best team, but uh, oh. they they just worked hard. And and going to the rink was entertaining because you know what product you were going to get. Well, the early years we referred to as the gory years, not the glory years, but the gory <laughs> years. And then and then around '96, they seemed to getting Doug Waite was a huge huge thing. I just I've never. Doug Waite, to me, was able to put up so many points with a team that was okay. You take a look at some of the guys now that are putting up teams, you know, putting up points with teams that are really good, and you respect that. But Dougie did it with, with they just weren't great teams. They had a bunch of pluggers, a bunch of guys who worked their asses off. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, Doug had over 100 points one season with a, an average, if not just slightly below average team. And I just never think he's ever been given full credit for that. And as a captain, he was fantastic. Uh, he, he treated everyone, whether you worked at the office or whether you worked on the broadcast crew, or in my case, you worked, you know, uh, I, I had this position where I had to respect the players, but I couldn't get too close to them uh, because you're, you're also working in a management position. So, it, it, it was fun, but it's just the one thing that a lot of people don't understand. There's a lot of fun, and you're on the road with the team a lot, but it is hard work. Like, it is not a 40-hour work week. 
and you're not being paid as well as you think you should be for a 40. Like I was, I was probably putting in 60 to 80 hour work weeks during the hockey season, but I loved it. It was great. Like would I like to earn their cash for it? Sure. I would have, but, but I just, once again, just got the gig, soaked everything up, watched it. The most fascinating part of it for me was that because I had done broadcasting and, you know, so you, you cover trade deadline a certain way or you see a trade a certain way or a coach firing. Well, now I'm working behind the curtain. And so now you see how it really works. And it was fascinating to me just to see uh, to see behind the scenes the way I did. And, and a career highlight for me was, you know, we had to put on Wayne Gretzky's retirement night. And I've never felt so much pressure ever in my life than I did for that night because you knew the city was watching. You knew the city was really conscious of how would this be played across Canada or the U.S. because Wayne was Wayne. And retiring his jersey and hanging that, that banner to the rafters was um, was so important to the city. And, you know, and Wayne was great. Uh, he, he was a blast to, to, to kind of guide along through that. Joey taking the banner out upside down uh, was was really yeah, it was kind of a tension reliever for a lot of us because we could all kind of chuckle and have some fun and we all love Joe so much. So working for the team was was great. I I you know, but here again, you burn out. You just it is hard to keep doing what you love at a certain level if you're working too much. Mm-hmm. And uh so for me, after the four and a half years, it was time to depart. And the other thing, too, I'd gone through the Slats era. And Glenn's method of management was completely different from Patrick's. So Patrick LaForge comes on, and Patrick wants his guys. He wants to go to war with his soldiers. I wasn't one of them. I still love Patrick. I talk to him frequently. and But I wasn't going to be one of his guys. So it was time to leave. And so I ran the, ran the, the course, but... Uh, it, you know, like I said, I learned a lot from players. Doug Waite, Bill Guerin were unbelievable guys for me. Cujo was another one. I, I can't name. I'd be naming a lot of guys off the team. Yeah. I still, I still. Jason Smith. I, Jason Smith and Mike Greer. I've never seen guys tougher. Like I would. Greer's is a classic example. I'd watch him come off the ice on the walkway, and his left shoulder's drooping, and I go, "Oh boy, separated shoulder." I would follow him into the locker room because I had access and it would be, he would go into the medical room and I didn't like going into the medical room. And it's almost like you could hear a little, little pop sound and he come, he come right back out about two or three minutes later. He'd go back out, yeah, pop the shoulder right back in. And Gator was another one of those guys who were tough as nails. And there's just a Todd Marshawn. I could list every guy. I love working with it. I, George, that the players were fantastic. It was just, it was a great experience for me, but it, the time had come at five years. I just didn't have, I had nothing left in the tank. Yeah. It takes a lot. You know, I, I think people uh, maybe, especially maybe on like the producer side or uh, a radio side, you just think all, oh, all it is is uh, organizing player interviews, uh, <laughs> that sort of thing in, yeah. in, in media relations, but there's a lot more to it. Um, one question, just working with the Oilers, and you kind of touched on a bit just having that relationship with players and maybe for young guys getting into um, team-specific roles uh, with, with junior teams. 
that relationship with the players and, and and even the coaches as well it seems like you can't be the guy that's going up to everyone shaking hands high five it's it's almost you have to build your reputation a bit and the players kind of come to you in terms of opening up and and kindling relationships really you can't just go in uh like a bull in a china shop trying to be chum chum no. with everyone well let, let me go two prongs on this first when i was at the university station, I still get a pass to go to the Oiler game. So I'm there. I'm in there as a kid. And I'm thinking, what am I doing in here? Like this Wayne Gretzky, Paul Coffey, you know, you, you know, Grant Fear. I was way in too deep. But I learned from Jim Matheson, uh, Terry Jones, Cam Cole in particular, uh, that you're welcome to come into the room, but you gotta you gotta know your place a little bit. If you have a question, you're gonna ask a player. Don't jump in front of the veteran guys right away. Let the question, like in the scrum, let the scrum wear down. And then afterwards, if you want to take it in a different direction, then you can talk to the player quietly, one-to-one. That way you're not kind of interfering with the, the veteran guys who you know have been around and they know what they want. So, so I kind of learned that from those guys. And then conversely, when I started at 1260, we were following a format – for our morning show that was working really well in the U.S. And that was, you get a more traditional sports guy, so that would have been me, and you, and you partner him up with a former player or another broadcaster who is going to see the game differently, maybe from a fan perspective. And so I got partnered up with Jake Daniels. And so the goal for us on the morning show, and it was by design, was my job was to kind of keep the show rolling and Jake was the sidekick, but Jake, Jake's goal was real simple, and it was, we need you to sit in the seats. We don't want you sitting in the press box. We want you to sit up in section double O. If the fans have a question or they're thinking about something and it comes up while you're having three beers up there, then when you come down to the locker room afterwards, let the process roll out. Let the, the media guys get their usual stuff, and then you go up to a couple of players or the coach and say, hey, I'm kind of curious – the fans up in Section Double O were wondering why you did this. And Jake did a really great job of developing relationships with players so they weren't threatened by being asked those questions. Where If I'd asked that question, they might have thought I was second-guessing them a little bit and they'd get a little more anxious. Mm-hmm. But Jake had done a great job of developing a different relationship with the players. I still laugh at the offensive line guys really, really loved jake to the point where they would even offer up a beer and one time he took it but he um he just realized that that you know it's great these guys are offering me a beer well the one time he had it and he cemented his relationship mm-hmm. he cemented his relationship with the offensive line every time we walked into the room those guys couldn't and ricky ray was another one immediately gravitated to jake because they weren't threatened by him and realized that if he is asking a question it may seem like a dumb question, but it was a question that was coming from the home base. Mm-hmm. So he did a really nice job of that. But a lot of the, the what I would call the hard-nosed sports fans who listen to the radio show never grasped that, never got it. Well, you know, like, yeah. Like, they just didn't. They, they, they couldn't. They, they could relate probably more to me, or at least they thought they could. But But conversely, I watched players respond much better to Jake because they had a relationship and now what I'm watching now that we've gone through COVID, where these the media guys, the closest they're getting to these guys is via Zoom. 
So there's no relationship being built with players mm-hmm. and media at all anymore. And I'm starting to see the distance grow. I don't think we're ever going to go back to walking into locker rooms again. And it concerns me a little bit because some of the best stories come when you pull a guy aside over in the corner of the room and go, hey, what about blah, 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 and you, know, you start going off on a tangent. Next thing you know, you find a story. I don't think you're going to find many stories anymore because of the environment and the way things are set up now. Mm-hmm. Guys can't develop. You can still have a good friendship with a player, but there's all, but, and those players understand that there's going to be a time where you get a turn on them, right? But, but conversely, I always, the thing for me, I always said, look, I think I'm fair. When you guys play great, I'll say it. When you play like shit, I'm going to say it. And if you have a problem with it, you come and find me. Don't yell across the freaking room in the locker room to flex your muscles. You come over and grab me and let's go talk about it in the corner and we'll solve the problem. And uh, I uh, had an episode with Ed Hervey when he was playing with the football team and they were in Calgary and Ed swung his helmet. It's a Labor Day game. It was Classic, very emotional. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, and so anyway, I went off the deep end the next day at Ed and how unprofessional it was and how it wasn't the way this team responds to stuff. And, and Ed got a one-game suspension. So sure enough, after the Friday night rematch, I see Ed over in the corner, almost in the shadows, kind of, you know? <laughs> and and he he waved, and then he kind of waved me over, you know, come over here for a minute. And you're always responsible for what you say, and you need to step up. You need to back it up. You need to go into the room, especially if you've carved them. And Ed, Ed and I had a really great conversation. He said, look, I respect you. I don't agree with what you said, but I respect you. And I said, well, that's how I feel. I was disappointed. And so we both kind of – and we had a great conversation, and it was really good for both of us. But now, because of the way things are, are developing, I don't think we're ever going to go that way anymore. And I, I'm saddened by that. Yeah, that's a very that's a very good point, Bryn. And uh, you know, well, time will tell. Time will tell what uh, what happens. But yeah, it's those relationships you can foster with with athletes and and coaches. But, 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 and, and Taylor, the other thing too is that you can still be friends with these guys, but you're not going to go out for a beer with them. Right. Yeah. That's not yeah. going to happen. And, yeah. and and here going back to when I was at K97 and 89 and I, I had a chance to cover them on two playoff runs. The one obviously culminated in them winning the cup. But the year before it was them meeting Gretzky for the first time in the playoffs. They lost that series. But I remember they lost one of the first two games in, in L.A. And so I was about to take a cab from the forum to the hotel. And as I'm walking up the from the Great Western Forum, you'd walk up this big ramp to get out. And as I'm there, Bill Twilley's there. He says, "What are you, are you going back to the hotel?" I said, "Yeah, well, John, she said, just jump on the bus. We're about ready to pull out of here." I said, "Okay, that's great," because I realized that if I could save myself thirty dollars in cab fare, <laughs> I'd have thirty dollars for beer. Uh, but but anyway, so I got on the bus and it's packed. And so I get on the bus, and they said, quick, grab a seat. And I, so I'm walking in the back of the bus, and there's Mess, and there's Kevin Lowe, and there's one seat, and it was next to uh, one of the players, a veteran player. And I sat down next to Charlie Huddy, and I was kind of, I'm thinking to myself, I am not going to say anything on this bus <laughs> for 10 minutes. I'm just going to sit here and stare ahead. And Charlie turns to me and says, they're sure giving you a hard time on the air, huh? And I look at him, and I realize at that moment, 
he's not Charlie Huddy, the hockey player right now. He's Charlie Huddy, the radio listener. And, and I said, oh, do you, have you been listening? He goes, I listen every day. And so do most of the guys on this bus. So when you're walking on the bus, as much as you're in awe, you know, in awe of the bus that you're on, all these guys know who you are because they listen every day. Mm-hmm. It just kind of changes the, the way you view the players a little bit. And I'm still close to a bunch of guys from that team. Um, but you're not going to be a teammate. You're not going to be a partner, but you're going to be you and he's going to be you. And you're going to have, a, you'll always have friendly banter. I ran into Charlie Huddy, you know, uh, on a game day when he came in with Winnipeg, he'd be, he'd be the first guy to come over and say hi, or I would do the same thing. So it's just, you, you, you still develop a relationship. It's just not going to be a pal one. Yeah, yeah, you got to realize uh, what yep. the situation is. Okay, well, let's jump in to the meat and potatoes uh, where we met, and it's Team 1260 AM in Edmonton. Um, but you mentioned with Jake Daniels, longtime FM jock on uh, 100.3 FM, The Bear. Uh, yep. you, you dive right in what it was like to work with him, but what was it like to build an all-sports station from the ground up uh, starting in, uh, in 2001? Well, I have two career highlights for me. One was following the Oilers in, in that, on that cup run. It was just so special, and uh, I, I, I remember every game. I remember everything about it. The second career highlight for me will be building that radio station from nothing. We, we flipped it from an oldie station over to a sports talk station. Gary Slate was the longtime owner with Standard Broadcasting. Marty Forbes was the guy, the general manager who dragged me across he didn't really drag me, but he uh, got <laughs> me in. Yeah, and I've been doing sports over at CTV. I was the sports editor or the sports director at the time, and under me I had Ryan Rushog and Brian Mudrick. They've done okay. They've done okay for themselves, both guys. I, I laughingly joke. Um, but, you know, to see Muddy doing the play-by-play for the Habs games is, is great, and Ryan is a, a, such a solid reporter and does a great job hosting – when he goes and does events, so I'm proud of both guys. But I got dragged across the hallway by Marty to launch this sports station. Gary wasn't sold it was going to work. But Marty says, well, let's give it a try. And we, we joined the Chum Network across the country, which was the team radio network. And so they had stations in Halifax and Montreal and Toronto and Winnipeg and uh, – and in Vancouver, so we decided we were going to flip this oldie station. But we didn't have a budget really to do it. Talk radio is not a cheap; it's the most expensive budget uh, it, it, in terms of expenses because you got to pay a lot of talent. So we realized we had that we had a networking program out of Toronto. So let's just get a morning show on the air for a while, and then just kind of build on it. So we did that. Uh, the first thing for me was I needed to find a, a, a broadcast partner in the morning show. And we had actually thought about Cub Carson because Cubby had really uh, done a big splash in the market. But, mm-hmm. but, but for some reason we were just throwing names around. And at the very time when we were throwing names around, Jake happened to walk by and dropped in to say, hi, he hadn't seen me for a while. I worked with him at K97 for a little, little bit back in the late eighties. And, and I pointed to, after he left the room, I pointed to Marty. I said, what is Jake doing? Well, they were getting close to, he'd been working with Matt Mahler, I believe, in the afternoons. And 
they were thinking that maybe they were going to go down to a one-man crew in the afternoons, and they didn't know what they were going to do with Jake. I said, well, he'd be perfect. He, he can do what we need to do. So anyway, we did the morning show on its own. We didn't stream the first year for one reason, and it wasn't that we didn't want people to not hear us. Well, that's not true. There was one guy we didn't want to hear us, and that was we didn't want Gary to hear uh, in Toronto for the first year. We wanted to get our feet wet <laughs> and, and build up a little bit of a following and, and just kind of get established before we let the owner of the company hear us. So, you know, uh, there, there was a big frustration with sports fans. They said, geez, you guys got to get on the streaming thing because everybody wants to hear you and they can't always hear you. And we had to keep saying, well, we're working on it. Well, we, we could have flipped the switch and done it today. We just the problem was we just didn't want to do it today because we didn't want Gary to hear and interfere with the momentum we were starting to build. And anyway, so uh, one of the things that we had to do is we had to run Bob McCowan's show, Primetime Sports, which was a very solid show, but it ran in our drive period in the afternoons. And when we ran that show, it, it gave us free access to doing the World Juniors. Uh, gave us free access to NFL broadcasts and and the Super Bowl. And in our first year, we even had the, the Grey Cup game. I, I had pleasure working on the national radio crew uh, covering the sidelines in that game. So so by running Bob's show, uh, we, we, we had the ability to run other programming, which I thought sounded great. Anyway, but we realized we needed an afternoon show. And so Marty says, "Well, if we run an afternoon show, where are you going to find where are you going to find anybody for that?" I said, "Well, I know just the guy, and I'd known Bob Stoffer for for years before then, and Bob has always done a great job at the U of A, but I didn't even known Bob a long time before that." I said, "Well, I know just the guy that I like to have in the afternoons." So we decided to run Bob. We convinced Bob to buy his show because we'd gone to the U.S. and a lot of sports radio stations were trying this where hosts were able to buy the time and then they would go out and sell advertising to cover their costs and whatever they made over and above that was their salary. So Bob decided to take it on and he went from five to seven. And then I realized that we got to get Bob on at three. So anyway, we, we got Bob on from three to six, Rand McCowan show, which is an hour show from six to seven. And so now we had a morning show and an afternoon show, and then we wanted to do an evening show, and I knew another guy named Jason Greger. And so I said, well, let's go get – let's see if we can get Jason to come on and do the evening show from 9 to midnight. And so Jason came on and did the same thing where he bought the time and went out and sold it, if I'm not mistaken, and did a great job. And then we had the whole episode happen with uh, the Oilers' ownership change, and, and uh, Bob had gotten to know Daryl Cates really well, and we knew that there was, that there was a high respect level that Daryl had with Bob, a trust level, mm -hmm. because we got a lot of stuff before Chad during that whole changeover, and it was because of Bob's relationship. In fact, at the press conference when Daryl Cates took over, the first thing he said is, I'm happy to have this over with so I don't have to take calls from Bob Stoffer anymore. <laughs> and, and I laughed, but I'm sitting in Marty's office and said, we're going to lose Bob. And sure enough, within two months, Daryl had had acquired Bob, and uh, I didn't worry about it. I was sad to see Bob go, but excited for Bob to take on this opportunity and to do order 
broadcasts with with Rod. But for me, it was easy. We just moved Jason down into into the drive show. And so anyway, piecing it all together was was a blast. It was a lot of fun. But I was working crazy hours. It cost me my marriage. It just I mean, it's just I I had put everything into what I was doing. I probably uh, should be scolded severely for doing what I did, but I did it because I wanted it to be successful. Guys like you popped up out of the blue. And, uh, you know, would we like to have hired guys like you full-time right out of the gate? Yeah, we would have, but we didn't have the budget for it. Mm-hmm. But you, but here again, you know, I, I can list off a bunch of guys that are still there. Well, Corey Graham's a classic example as well. Uh, guys, you could always tell the guys who had – had not only the skill set, which is always important, had good good energy, but just had had that it factor. And you were one of those guys. So it was for me a hire. A hire was not a, for hiring you was not tough. Hiring Corey was not tough. There's a whole long list of guys, right? Well, but, thank, yeah, you know, thank you for that, Bryn. <laughs> no, no, not not a problem. Like I said. And the other thing, too, is that I still get notes from guys. And I haven't been there since 2008. And then, of course, there was an ownership change that happened, too, in 2008. So, you know, this is almost seven years later. And as I said with the Patrick thing, when new guys come in, new management come in, they want to go to war with their guys. So I was burned out, and I was about ready to be let go. And that was not a concern for me because I bounced back before and I bounced back again. So... Mm -hmm. Not, not overly worried about it. And uh, to me, you know, I, I haven't liked the way the media, the media business has worked out where the big corporations are so concerned about shareholder return now that they're treating, they're treating great broadcasters and great people, more importantly, like absolute shit. And I hate it. I don't like to, like I was hearing that this last bell thing was done by some robocalls. And it just uh, makes my blood go cold when I hear that. But I just wish that there was better treatment of the people in the business. I just think that people right now are just treated very, very poorly. And by some companies, some still are great. Uh, I think Stingray is doing a really nice job of treating people. The the Patterson Group do a great job. I've even done a little bit of part-time work over at at Up. And the Patterson people are wonderful. There's still really good broadcasting companies out there. Mm-hmm. But some of the big guys are are tough. It's tough, tough business, man. Yeah, and you know, obviously, I, I, with with highs there are lows, and I wanted to ask you, um, you know, radio and and TV, just broadcasting in general, is a little bit old school, and and you do have to have that. Um, not so much you got to keep watching your back, but you have to have maybe in the back of your mind that um, you know potentially this could be your last day, sort of thing. Um, but you can't think yeah. like that. But how does someone no. prepare going into this business that um, it is a little bit cutthroat? Well, you know, it's funny. And I, I, I think I may have learned this from Brian and uh, Bill Matheson back in the 90s. And it was, okay, look, at the end of the day, you might call yourself a broadcaster. You might call yourself a sportscaster or whatever. But what you are is you're an entertainer. And, and some journalists on radio would hate that, hate to be called – an entertainer, but really, that's what that's what you are. And not only are you, yeah, it is. It's what it is. It, it you know, sometimes you got to call it what it is. The other thing too is that not only are you an entertainer, I'll use morning show hosts. You're part of everybody's breakfast table. 
right? Like when I stopped doing, when I got out of regular media, and I still run into guys and said, oh, I sure miss you in the mornings. You were part of our breakfast crew at the house where the kids and everybody would be cooking breakfast and the kids would be sitting there getting ready for school. The radio was on and we were listening to you every day. And so you became part of our breakfast, our, our, our family through breakfast. Well, that's that's the that's the wonderful thing. There's no bigger compliment, I don't think, for a broadcaster than to hear that. But I think that you when you start to realize that you're as much an entertainer as you are a journalist you have to take a look at let's use actors as an example actors uh i'm trying to remember who was jason alexander gets on a great run doing the seinfeld show right Mm -hmm. and said he'd been working in the business for a long time and he just walked right into this opportunity and then they went with that show and that went for quite a while it doesn't mean that's going to ever happen to you again you just catch a you catch a, a, a shooting star and you ride it for as long as you possibly can. And that's the same with this business is that you don't want to be worried or thinking about, yeah, if the door knocks, is it going to be the end for me? You just worry about making sure that you sound great today, that you're, you know, giving some information, giving out some entertainment, maybe, maybe getting somebody to laugh a little bit. That's what your job is. My God, I, I was able, nobody knew away from, work that my dad had passed away suddenly or my sister had passed away super suddenly because at the end of the day i recognized that the person at home they would care if you told them but at the end of the day they're they want you to be a steady component of their day they want to be able to rely on you for weather or whatever uh sports scores all that kind of stuff so you can't let people down but i my theory is i never worried about watching my back because you're going to get the act great people get blown out great people burn out Mm -hmm. it just depends on where where you're at and i think great people bounce back so you just keep your head up is this a tough time to come into the business oh yeah but i still think there's some great media companies out there but if you're coming in just doing sports only i think that that's pretty risky because i think the job opportunities are far less than they ever were uh, if you're, if you're, if, you know, and same thing with, with jocks that more and more stations are now being done out of certain, like one market and then it's being rebroadcast on other stations. So there's less jock positions than there's ever been before. Uh, let's see a good friend of ours. Another guy hired that I hired drew Dalby. I love drew. He's a great guy. He really did a great job, uh, cutting his teeth on our station and now he's doing a more a morning show. He's based in Kingston, but he's booming into all these other little markets. And that's how the business has gone. And mm-hmm. so I'm a little worried about that. But I, my theory is it's like any job now with the economy. Just keep your head down. Do what you can. Do the best job you can. And you can't control how corporations are going to deal with you, nor should you worry about it. I, I think you just got to keep your you got to keep your focus. That's the big thing. No, that's uh, that's great ad- advice. Uh, I don't want to take too much up of your time, Brent, so we could probably do this again um, with uh, talking a little more about your career, really going into uh, a, d- a deep dive into some great subjects. But let's end it off uh, the first episode of Behind the Mic uh, with a guest. I, I recorded one uh, just by myself blabbing on about me. Um, but uh, let's do a little speed round, uh, maybe uh, one-word okay. answers if you can. 
Um, one word answers. Well, you can elaborate. I know one word answers are kind of hard in our business. Um, it is, but okay, I'll do what I can. Okay, let's rifle through uh, some questions here. Uh, what okay. was your favorite sport to call? Hockey. Your favorite team to call? Uh, 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 Warriors. <laughs> favorite player to call? Theo Fleury. Yeah, he was uh, he was fantastic. Uh, Never a dull player. moment with Theo. Love him. <laughs> still, uh, still, still keep in contact with him. Well, that's that's great. Best team being around. You might have already answered this. Oilers. Eighty nine, or when you were full time with the team. Uh, that's that's tough because I I was in front of the you know in in front of the curtain and behind the curtain. Yeah. Behind the curtain, I think be, uh, behind. I'm going to say behind the curtain. Because you see a little different side of the players. Favorite venue or city to go to? Oh, damn, that's a tough one. Uh, favorite city is New York. Uh, but venue, as much as I love MSG, damn it, that's a tough one. Um, geez, that's hard. Okay, this is going to shock you. And, it, and it's the Arthur Ashe Stadium. I, I had a chance to go to the U.S. Open uh, one day, and I sat in that facility, and I went, this is easily the nicest facility I've ever been in because it was so perfectly designed for the demographic that was watching tennis. Wow. Great scene. I think anyway, I'm th- I just thought it was an unbelievable venue. Yeah, I'm thinking of Rod Laver uh, Stadium in, yes, uh, in Australia. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Okay. I, I think you touched on this, but the best broadcasting advice you ever got or just best advice you got? Take your personality, multiply it times 10, and treat everybody the same. One sport you always wanted to cover or call but never got the chance to? I did a little baseball, too, covering the Edmonton Trappers back in the day, too. I did color one season. Uh, So I I experienced baseball. That was fun. I would would love to do uh, either football or soccer play-by-play. Favorite job ever? Uh, programming 1260. Favorite broadcaster, uh, let's go maybe two-part active and then all-time. Uh, active, I'm impressed. Joe Buck does an unbelievable job on everything he does. Mm-hmm. And then all-time. Jim, Na- Jim Nance would be a real close second. And there's a few guys in Canada, too, that I, 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 I put in that category. Um, uh, but, but anyway, those are the first two that come to mind. And all-time, I think one of my all-time favorite guys, uh, it's funny how I'm mentioning U.S. guys. They just seem to jump up. <laughs> one of my all-time favorite guys that I always loved was Dick Enberg. And Al Michaels also is another guy that does a lot of different sports. Mm-hmm. I, I like the guys who can do everything. Yeah. I, They're the Swiss I Army knights right. of broadcasters. Mm-hmm. You know? Okay, so, lastly, Bryn, who should be – behind the mic on another episode who should be on the show one person a uh, good friend of mine darren drager darren in the last year in particular has meant a lot to me because obviously i've had a cancer struggle here in the last year uh stomach cancer and uh so i had my entire stomach taken out a year ago and i'm doing okay everything seems to be good it's quite positive but but Dregs, uh, who I got to know when he came through Edmonton for that one year, and I'd known him from Winnipeg too, 
Uh, Darren lined me up with Dale Howardchuck last year to talk to me. And Dale basically pumped my tires, got me ready for an eight-hour surgery, and uh, gave me some great advice because he was going through stomach cancer issues. And so Darren not only was a good friend in the broadcast business, but personally just lined me up with Dale. And uh, that uh, meant an awful lot to me last year at a time when I needed a little more coaching. And we can talk about Dale Howardchuck all we want in terms of being a, a Hockey Hall of Famer. But I saw the, the coaching aspect of Dale because he coached me through the first few months of recovering from that stomach surgery I, that I had. And so uh, I'm going to say Darren Dreger. Drake, because he's got a great story. Yeah, he'd be uh, he'd be a lot. Uh, okay, a couple more then before I let you go. Why do you think it, all these Edmonton guys? You know, there's so many people out there that have gone and come gone on to big things that have come through Edmonton. What do you think? It's uh, is it something in the in the water here? Or, uh, well, it's funny. What's the it's reason you think? Say, it's funny you should say that because I spent I spent almost two years in Calgary at Sportsnet in Calgary. I love my time on the air with Pat Steinberg. And doing those Flames games was a lot of fun for me. But I heard this question more out of the guys in Calgary. Um, why Why are all these guys, why have they gone through Edmonton? And, of course, there would be the old joke about, well, that's because they wanted to get out of Edmonton. But, there, you know, that was the Calgary angle on it. But in fairness, I mean, you take a look at all these guys, Gord Miller, uh, Darren Drager, uh, Darren DeChishan, uh, God, I, I, it's a long, go long on, list yeah. of guys. I could go on and on about the broadcasters who've gone through here. I, I think part of it is is that we're very hyper-competitive here. And I, I never felt the competition level was this intense in Calgary. A great, all the guys had a great relationship with one another. But they're just, I, there's always been a, the goal here for broadcasters was to beat the shit out of your friends at work and still maybe go out for a beer or a, a burger or a pizza after a game, after beating the shit out of your friends on stories. It, 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 there was just something special. I, I don't know if it's still there, but it, it certainly was in my time. And uh, I loved nothing more than beating guys to stories. And then after every order game, after everybody filed, we would just go over and meet at this one bar or we'd stop off at the old Coliseum pizza steakhouse have a couple drinks after the game or you know any of the bars that are of course aren't around anymore but mm-hmm. i don't know it was it, it was hyper competitive and i think that competitiveness drove guys to to take it to the next level and that's not saying that there aren't great quality guys in calgary there there are but it's just there, there was something about the market here back then that just seemed to just drive guys to the next level that's that's how i see it and before we let you go, lastly, Bryn, uh, your content, uh, MightyMouth.ca is your site. You uh, work on yep. some consultation, and you got a, a podcast called The Outsiders. So that's where uh, everyone can find your info right now? Absolutely. Uh, MightyMouth.ca is, is my website. But the one thing that I've veered into now is doing uh, corporate podcasting because I talked to various friends two years ago, actually, to right now. We were going through a cold snap, a five-week cold snap where the temperatures never got above minus 26. And I just decided I wasn't going to spend it all at home and hibernate. I wanted to go out and see guys that I knew that were in other businesses besides broadcasting. 
And they all asked me what I wanted to do. I said, I wanted to do a sports podcast. I'll go out and sell it. And they all said the same thing. They all said the exact same thing. Well, we've always wanted to do that. To which I, as our interviewer, would say, then why aren't you doing it? You know, you obviously have to ask the next question. And they said that they were scared. They didn't have any broadcast technology. Everything they listed off, I went, shit, I can do that. Mm-hmm. So so what I've been doing now is I'm doing corporate podcasting for various clients. And I continue to have meetings. I, I could, uh, I'm going to have a full slate of clients by the end of the year for sure and it's just been fun for me the one thing uh, the joke around the house here is i don't want it to turn into full-time work uh that's you know i've kind of been enjoying having a little downtime as well just especially now we're recovering mm-hmm. i just uh i but i'm i'm certainly enjoying doing the corporate podcasting it's fun just go check out the website and if anybody wants to track me down just drop me an email i get back to people pretty quick well, thank you, Bryn, for uh, for being uh, on behind the mic and going behind the mic and getting a chance to hear your story. It's been great to hear that uh, you're uh, you're you're on the on the men and health wise. You're open about it, and uh, and it's good to see you doing well. And uh, and again, oh. thank you so much for helping me out uh, on this uh, first endeavor. Uh, you got me my start in radio, and now you're helping me getting my uh, start in uh, my podcast. Uh, adventures so i thank you well full speed ahead taylor full speed ahead man well what a great conversation that was with uh bryn griffiths uh the man who got me my start in sports radio and uh and um we could have went on for another hour um <laughs> we'll we'll get him back on again and and two as well uh that was kind of the lay of the land obviously chronologically going through bryn's journey up until uh uh, team 1260 and and he has uh, a lot more to talk about too um in his post years um into the uh, the teen years of the 2000s um with his career and certainly you know there was a lot of opportunity uh as well to really dive in to certain areas um of his career and his stops and getting into some more technical questions which uh you know next time he's on we'll we'll definitely dive into those and that's going to be the kind of the evolution too of uh of the podcast and and maybe we'll have specific topics for guests on some episodes versus going through their career chronologically and obviously if uh, if i can only get someone for a certain amount of time um like we had Bryn on this episode you know we'll certainly uh cater to uh, to the guests and and maybe diving into some interesting topics uh, specific topics rather than just going um chronologically and it was really great chronologically meaning career uh it was really great with those 10 questions um and and those will maybe change as well as we evolve uh in this show but uh, there were some certain ones uh, uh that were great to hit on and he had mentioned too um after we had stopped recording how could he forget uh, chris cuthbert uh, as an all-time uh favorite and active i mean that's a guy that uh could be uh, in both categories for that favorite broadcaster question uh, chris cuthbert fantastic he had mentioned don whitman as well the late great don whitman i had mentioned how in my first episode just talking about myself uh how much i really liked uh, don whitman growing up as an all-time broadcaster that's for sure so that was uh, some great insight but he did want me to mention that chris cuthbert uh would be not only a great choice on uh favorite uh, active in all time but uh, someone who should be 
on behind the mic so hopefully uh we can get chris on one day as well as his suggestion of uh, darren dreger um with tsn he would be fantastic uh, to get on and then we kind of dived in and a bit on it but uh, the amount of broadcasters from canada um in the bigger markets um that you could attribute to edmonton is is really amazing we touched on a few names uh with bryn and and uh you know even now on uh, on the television when you're watching uh, whether it's a sportsnet or tsn you can flag down uh a lot of guys that uh, that came through edmonton and got uh got uh their big break so to speak and into the market and uh, that was really good when he mentioned uh, guys like uh, Ryan Rashog or Brian Mudrick of TSN and where they've gotten to uh, is really amazing uh, and uh, and that's uh, that was great to uh, to hear that from Bryn so that was episode two of behind the mic with Taylor Medic and our first episode with a guest and we will endeavor every week to get you someone to talk to or to hear, I will talk to them, someone to hear about their journey through sports broadcasting and uh, and share their tales of uh, what their careers have been like. And there's so many different avenues we can go in um, because broadcasting, sports broadcasting is changing. Bryn touched on it uh, a bit uh, with uh, some of the groups out there right now um, and what they're doing for uh, for media and broadcasting. And as well now, it's, it's ever-changing. Uh, podcasts are very uh, easily accessible in terms of being able to start your own and starting up and that's an avenue uh, that uh, certainly a lot of people can go down you certainly can be uh, an entertainer as uh, as Bryn had said uh, and podcasting is a way to do it and an opportunity to do kind of your own thing that hopefully will engage with uh, with other people and allow you to uh, hear get your message heard and uh and that's uh, that's really exciting. What's really great with uh, you know, there's certainly we we can point out uh, the drawbacks of uh, of too much technology right now. I know I'm certainly a person that um, if you know me, uh, will uh, will hear. I like to uh, really nitpick uh, our technology these days. But I think podcasting uh, is certainly a positive one. That's for sure. So that uh, wraps it up for this second episode of behind the mic with taylor medic look forward to having another conversation with you where we pick someone who has a sports broadcasting background and they go behind the mic